Hi, everyone. You're listening to the Bellingcat Monitoring Podcast, where we talk about important issues and developments related to the far right across Central and Eastern Europe and around the world. My name is Michael Colborn. I am a journalist and investigator at Bellingcat, where I head up our research and monitoring of the far right. When it comes to the international far right, there there really is so much to write about. There's so much for us to talk about. But at the same time, there's so much that doesn't get discussed very much, or it doesn't get discussed nearly as much as it uh, as it should or as it deserves. So our goal with this podcast at Bellingcat is to try and shed some light on some of those less explored spaces when it comes to the international far right, to talk about in more detail some of these issues that, sure, we talk about some, but we don't talk about nearly enough. Uh, and one of those issues that I think is really important is women and gender and the far right. So that's why today I'm speaking with Dr. Evian Leidig about women on the far right. So I'm really happy to have on today with us uh, Evian Leidig. She's a research fellow at the International Center for Counterterrorism in The Hague in the Netherlands. Uh, she's researched and written a lot about uh, about the far right across the world. And she actually has a book uh, coming out with Columbia University Press next year on women in the far right. And that's really something I, I would definitely be on the on the pre-order list for Evian. So uh, th- thanks for uh, taking the time to chat with us here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, I, I mean, I, I just g- gave listeners the very brief intro to who you are and what you research. But uh, can you tell us a bit more about your your work, your research, particularly concerning uh, women on the far right? Yeah, so I have been researching women in the far right for the last few years specifically, although before that I was researching other aspects of the far right. So Mm -hmm. uh, before I was at ICCT, I did my PhD and then a postdoc at the Center for Research on Extremism, Mm -hmm. which is based at the University of Oslo. And it's the first fully dedicated center focused on the far right. Um, Mm -hmm. Incidentally, one that was created in reaction to the 22nd of July attacks in Norway in 2011 mm-hmm. by Anders Bering Breivik. And the government said, we need to create a center to focus on understanding and eventually in preventing right-wing extremism. So hence, that's that's how CREX was founded as an institution. So I would say that I have been focused specifically in researching on the far right uh, within the last 10 years or so. Um, and more recently, uh, I've been looking into the role of women and also gender and sexuality more broadly within the far right. And my research crosses transnationally from India to Europe to North America. So I do try to look at this at a very global scale. Yeah. And I, I, I saw when, when I've read some of your work, that's, that's one reason, again, why I wanted to talk to you is because your work, whether related to these issues of, of gender, women, and sexuality, uh, your work crosses national boundaries. And of course, with what we focus on at Bellingcat Monitoring, while we're focusing on Central and Eastern Europe, which, which is itself a very broad category, we're interested in transnational trends and, and everything about how, how, how nationalists like to be international. So 
one one question that I wanted to start off with is it with the research that we do at Bellingcat and then I do myself, uh, the far right is so often perceived as just a man's game, you know, so much so that those of us who research, investigate, and monitor the far right, uh, I don't think we always pay enough attention to the fact that, uh, y- you know what, there's women on the far right too. And I, I'll fully confess that I'm one of these researchers, investigators, journalists who sometimes, you know, sometimes lose a sight of that. So I, I'll, I'll start with what what could be a broad enough question probably for its own dissertation and sorry about that but uh what exactly what does your research found what gets women into the far right so that it is a very broad question yes uh, <laughs> um no but i think what i found in doing my research for my book on women in the far right mm-hmm. is that there's really two different types of women who i've identified uh, as being part of the far right So the first would be those that come from already traditional or often religious backgrounds. And they describe as growing up in very conservative households. Usually they describe a parent, almost always the father, who's who's quite politically active and maybe more on the conservative end than, say, the extreme right end, but still something that inspired their future political activism. And then on the other hand, uh, there's a type of far-right woman who describes themselves as, quote, recovering feminists. Mm-hmm. Um, and these women will often describe their life journeys of uh, being red-pilled, where they they sort of describe growing up in, in actually a middle-class households and in middle-class neighborhoods, um, going to university, uh, and then actually starting a professional career, sort of climbing that corporate ladder. Mm-hmm. Many of them also describe living in urban metropolitan uh, areas, uh, socializing with friends and colleagues from work. Uh, but then all of these women will describe a period in which they find themselves to be deeply unhappy and deeply depressed with their life mm-hmm. situation. And here they attribute that unhappiness to feminism. Okay. So they basically blame feminism for uh, making women unhappy by forcing them to work uh, outside of the household, for sort mm-hmm. of uh, forcing women to be, uh, quote, unnaturally competitive with each other. I mean, this is how they describe feminism. Mm-hmm. Um, so they just, they say that they are recovering feminists and so sort of reaching out to other uh, potential women to join the far right who are recovering feminists themselves. Mm-hmm. But, you know, an important caveat here is that these far-right women often understand or see their past selves through their present selves. So what I mean is that they understand the world through their ideological worldview of being part of the far-right. So this is how they describe their past experiences. Whether or not it's true, I think, can be left uh, sort of up to interpretation. Mm-hmm. And... For women in the far right, I think we see a lot of similar overlaps to men in the far right. You know, they seek this uh, like-minded community mm-hmm. uh, of others. For women in particular, they attribute that to traditionalism. Um, but also what I have found in my research is that for many of these far right women, it's also an opportunity for exposure and for recognition okay. uh, of being part of the far right and for finding that, that agency within the movement. So from 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 the way you describe it, it it it's very clear that women 
have a variety of roles on the far right, whether they're more prominent or less prominent within a movement. Uh, and perhaps from, I don't know, you can, you can tell us, but like, what are, what are women's roles, different roles on the far right from your research? Does it differ across certain contexts, like different kinds of far right movements or tendencies? Does it even differ across regions or countries or anything like that? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I really like that you said roles in plural because there's mm -hmm. no singular role okay. for women in the far right. Um, I will say that to start off primarily, they do see their roles as that of being wives and mothers mm -hmm. of the movement. And, and this is across different regions and contexts. Uh, this is something that's quite universal. I, I've seen it in my research in India as much as I've seen it in Europe and North America. And, you know, this is perhaps the most obvious reason, just that being tied to the reproduction of the race, usually the white race mm -hmm. uh, in Western context. And so they see that as their primary duty uh, within the movement. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of these far right women also more broadly um, serve roles as recruiters, mm -hmm. uh, as radicalizers, propagandists, also more logistical things like fundraisers and, and organizers. Um, so it's really quite a plethora of different functions that they serve. Um, but it, it can also depend uh, on the type of activism with each organization. Mm -hmm. So what one woman does in a political party could be very different from what one does in a militant organization, for example, or, or, or to a social movement like, uh, like the Denitary movement, for instance. Mm -hmm. And even within uh, the type of, of organization, it can vary. So even internally, that can vary too. Like if mm -hmm. a woman is perhaps more in a de facto leadership role uh, rather than a rank and file, which we can discuss a bit later. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes we also see women incite violence. Um, it's There's actually a very long history of, of mm -hmm. this in India, of, of seeing far-right women at rallies incite violence. That, that, that's, yeah. yeah, sorry, that seems totally counterintuitive to me and it probably does to a lot of other listeners as well specifically looking at the far right in a quote-unquote western or european context so could you tell, tell us a bit more about that because that's uh yeah that that piqued my interest right there as you can tell yeah i mean again i think it is very surprising for, for most of us and, and let alone say a woman that does engage in in violence uh, I think there's very few examples, at least like notable ones, but uh, it's more common that they might incite violence uh, instead. Uh, and I've seen this in my research looking into different uh, rallies and, and riots, well, rallies that turned into riots actually yeah. because of, of the violence, um, but sort of encouraging particularly young men to, to go out and sort of uh, assert their position in society and mm -hmm. assert that burden onto them. So. Um, yeah, so sometimes, you know, we, we, we see uh, the role of women um, with inciting violence, too, in addition to the other aspects like, like fundraising or propaganda. Um, what I have seen in my research that I think is really interesting is that we, I've also seen far-right women recruit both women and men uh, mm -hmm. into the far-right. And actually, they often recruit men more than they recruit women, which more I thought than, was interesting. Okay, yeah. yeah. Because I think it begets the question, you know, what if they're not there to recruit women, then what are they really there for? Yeah, I mean, I think, frankly, like I, 
I, I, I look back uh, a few years ago thinking about some of the, the far-right movements that I've covered and wondering and just remembering some of the thoughts I had, you know, where where, I, where there's relatively few women or especially young women in some of these movements. And to be honest, I what you've just said, I don't think I ever really consciously thought of some of these women as being people who would recruit men as well. Now, hindsight makes me feel, you know, a bit dense that, you know, I probably should have seen that, but uh, I guess not. Yeah, it seems a bit counterintuitive. So I I can understand why people would be surprised Mm. by this. Um, I mean, the pessimist in me says that it's maybe more of a honey trapping sort of situation. Uh, I do know there is an example of an organization of Hungary whose name I do forget, so I apologize, which has very recently promoted this young woman as a spokesperson Mm -hmm. for for the organization. Um, And we've seen her, let's say, her political career grow with that because at first people were curious, why is this woman speaking on behalf of this far-right organization? Mm -hmm. Uh, And now she's gaining more confidence and sort of on social media and also appearing at more events, giving speeches at rallies Mm -hmm. and so forth. So... Um, I think they're seeing that it's effective um, to, to sort of have uh, women be there, be quite prominent. Um, mm. But now when it comes to radicalization narratives specifically, what I have seen in, in my research is that far right women will often tailor their narratives to men and women differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll use feminine and masculine framings, right? So with the feminines about sisterhood, traditionalism, uh, anti-feminism uh and and with men it's it's often appeals towards you know quote-unquote biological masculinity um sort of traits of leadership and dominance so i I see the way that they tailor their narratives quite specifically in order to target women and men uh into the far right um but i think most importantly uh Mm -hmm. is that far right women help to legitimize and normalize the far right. Um, And we tend to forget this uh, when we think about what is the broader purpose. Um, So, I mean, often we have our own mainstream stereotypes about gender. As you mentioned yourself, uh, Michael, you know, you said, oh, I don't always think about women in the far right. Yeah, but, you know, I I think, you know, one one doesn't like to to admit that they have... uh, have and have had blind spots, but I'll yeah, say, it, say it here that, yeah. that I have. So, But I mean, you're not alone, <laughs> you know, and I think often we have our, our, our broader mainstream stereotypes about gender. Mm-hmm. We don't often see women as a threat. And so the far right uses that to their advantage um, mm-hmm. in, in sort of positioning women with, with these platforms. Mm-hmm. And you, you see that uh, across different, say, American or other European contexts. Um, do you have any very, like, even even very broadly, if you don't want to name who they are specifically, are there any examples, other examples that really that really come to mind? I know you mentioned you, you just mentioned a, an, a, a spokesperson, a woman in Hungary, but I'm wondering if there are any any others that really kind of uh, elucidate what what you mean here. So I suppose some other examples would be most what I'm most familiar with, which is working on India. But I also recently have done a paper with a colleague um, looking at far-right women in Brazil. 
Oh, really? Um, So we did a comparative paper looking at far-right women in India and Brazil, and we found that they have very similar uh, strategies in terms of upholding gender, uh, class, and racial hierarchies. Um, And and of course, some were connected to some offline groups. Uh, Some are more like online political commentators, Mm -hmm. regardless of of the network that they were connected to or the organization. They, They had a lot of very shared themes uh, in terms of the ideology, but also um, how the ideology gets communicated to to a mass audience. So we study these women specifically on on Twitter and Instagram. Okay, that's pretty interesting. One thing that I that I I do find interesting, having not just read your work, but what you've what you've just said here, is you you, t- you talk about how one role of women on the far right, particularly as influencers or recruiters is to well recruit men to get to get to get men on board and doing so by asserting this message of masculinity for men and i'm i'm certainly used to seeing masculinity if not uh, a hyper masculinity form a very central part of the narratives the imagery of a lot of the groups and individuals that i've covered and that we've covered here at bellingcat like in other words men pushing the masculinist message. Like one example of a group that we've written about is this uh, so-called male state group from, from Russia, this, this masculinist message in conversation that just doesn't really seem to directly involve women at all. And that's why I find it so interesting that you're talking about how women on the far right also play into this framing as well. So how exactly do they square femininity with being a woman, with asserting and pushing such a you know a patriarchal, a masculinist message. Yeah, so I, I do get this question a lot because it really reveals a paradox within the far right. Um, the greatest irony is that far right women they preach anti-feminism, but at the same time they're exercising those quote unquote masculine traits. Uh, of, of leadership, dominance, uh, aggression, etc., cetera. Uh, and then they often sort of fail to recognize that themselves, um, this, this, this irony. Um, but these far-right women, they constantly, and I've seen in my research, they constantly face misogyny by other men uh, within the far-right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they tend to just shrug it off. Or, or they'll make sort of uh, emasculating comments. So, so, for example, on a live stream, I'll see like very misogynistic comments, and they'll sort of say, you know, if you say comments like that on the chats, you'll be kicked off um, from the live stream. Or they'll just try to make some emasculating comments. But I mean, I've seen it constantly—the type of mm-hmm. misogyny that these women face from other men within the far right. Now, how do they justify it? Uh, well, in many ways, they see their role within the far right as being their contribution to the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and they recognize that a movement without female leaders, even if de facto, is doomed to fail. Um, I mean, you can't really have a successful movement if you don't have men and women uh, both mm-hmm. involved in it. Um, and on a more pessimistic note, in many ways, I think that female support and misogyny, what they're promoting, it works if it benefits them, um, at least in the short term. As I mentioned earlier, these women do seek opportunity 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they do seek celebrity uh, within these spaces. Um, and so if that means that they promote misogyny, um, then at the very least, they're still successful, uh, at least in the short term. So one one quote that I read recently is from a book called Political Masculinity by Suzanne Kaiser. It was is a quote from I think an alt I'll paraphrase it from some alt right figure in the U.S. and they kind of uh, said the 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 quiet part loud in in some message. Apparently, they said something like, you know, it's not that women are unwelcome in our movement; it's that they're they're unimportant. It's that they're a sideshow. And I mean, that's that's a pretty blunt and, and crass way to put it. Like, I'm wondering, is that the kind of mentality that women face in general across across the far right from your experience? Maybe not expressed in such blunt terms, but uh, surely this, this fellow is not the only man on the far right who thinks this way. Yeah, surely not. <laughs> and it's not a surprising comment to me. Um, I have seen similar ones in my research. I think what might sort of cloud my positioning here is that I do focus on female far-right leaders mm-hmm. or de facto leaders. And so, um, I, but I am confident that those types of attitudes um, from the, like, like the quote that you read are mm-hmm. very prevalent uh, across the, the far-right yeah. s- space so or, or milieu rather. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I'm really not surprised. I think most men within the far right primarily see women's role as, as you know, being in the kitchen, uh, right. serving men within the movement. So um, we should not forget just how deep this misogyny is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just like any other political opportunist, the far right just sees a way to weaponize that for its own agenda. Right. Now, you, you said that most of your research and, and, and work has been on, you know, leaders, prominent individuals, influencers, if we will, uh, on, on the far right, female influencers. Um, but women also, of course, they make up in, in varying ways part of a far right group or, or movements sort of less high profile rank and file, if, if you want to put it that way. I mean, this is something I've seen myself, whether attending different far-right events in Western, Eastern Europe. I see it online in various uh, far-right telegram chat groups, again, across different countries and contexts. Uh, I, I know you said your research mostly focuses on those more prominent individuals, but is is there anything different or unique to what some of these rank and file women do on the far right versus more some of these more high profile influencers? Is that something you could speak to? So yeah, you're correct in that I'm not too familiar with the experiences of, of these rank and file far right women, mm-hmm. um, and I've I've actually read very little research about them. So uh, which, don't worry, so have I, which, and that's which, part of the reason why I'm asking. <laughs> exactly, but I think that's quite telling as well, because de facto, so much of the research is done on rank and file far right men, right? So I'd be very curious <laughs> for some updates myself, but I can tell you about what some of the older research has shown, um, which I still think is still relevant uh, today. 
Um, so what I've read um, from the past is that rank and file far right women, they also do play key roles in helping to sustain movements, probably not as visibly as say uh, the leadership, um, but they literally are doing domestic and care work uh, for, for particular for men and children uh, within mm. the far right. I mean, we sort of underestimate the value of that labor, but it's so important um, for the far right as well. They they literally feed the movement so that they yeah. can cook and clean. Uh, but they can also uh, do other tasks such as organizing travel uh, or mm-hmm. bookkeeping, sometimes even the financials uh, in terms of uh, actually helping to make sure that, that the movement is sustainable. Um, and they also help with distribution of material as well, you know, mm-hmm. things like, like pamphlets. Um, uh, books, uh, that's that sort of thing, organizing meetings, all this type of like logistical work. And so past research has shown that that far right women have played quite key roles uh, with these types of tasks. Um, but also what has been really interesting um, in the older research is that it tells us that it's harder for women to leave the far right than for men. Um, and this is often because of safety risks or, or threats mm-hmm. to their personal life, uh, both to them, but in particular to their children, if they have children mm-hmm. uh, within these far right groups. Um, so that's also an aspect to consider when we think about, you know, eventual um, prevention efforts, say, or, or thinking about ways to best counter the far right is also right. actually thinking not just about the individuals, but also um maybe even families that, that are involved. Uh, and, in these and, and not just thinking about men or young men and their pathways in and out of the far right. And I think being conscious of that, what, what might uh, get some young men to slowly leave the far right may not be the same as for a woman in a particular situation. Yeah, exactly. Right. It, just another thing I just just kind of thought of this as as we've been talking is as as the far right continues across the world to adapt as it always does to more you know to more to more carefully craft its messages to get more mainstream appeal or at the very least to get less mainstream criticism do you think we're going to start seeing more, more women in some of these influencer or other public type roles as we go on? Because I'm actually thinking about this from the like putting myself for a very short few seconds, putting myself in the shoes of somebody on the far right and realizing the impact that you know a, a woman giving a particular message versus a man can like like you said and you have alluded to it can having a woman saying you know polishing a particular far right message it becomes a lot more acceptable in some people's minds than if it were somebody who looks like me giving that message so given that do you think that there's going we're going to see more women in some of these roles on the far right or is it a bit too soon to tell I do think that we're starting to see women become more active in furthering these uh, these narratives. Um, and I mean, as you've mentioned, the far right is so well adept and so savvy yeah. um, 
that and, and they can see the successes that the women have had in the movement. You know, there right. might be some internal backlash, a lot of misogyny against them, but they do see mm. that for the external image, uh, it's been quite effective. And so, uh, you know, the far right has for a very long time been adept at weaponizing misogyny to advance their agenda. And so certainly if they see an opportunity, uh, well, I, I suppose it's fair to say that opportunity has already arrived, but, uh, you know, I, I do think that it's it's entirely feasible um, that we'll start to see more and more far-right women uh, in, in, in public positions or, or at least be more visible uh, mm. in being spokespersons for promoting yeah. these messages. Yeah, more, more being the literal faces of of movements, of groups, or, you know, I, I, I mean, I just think to, some again, some of the few examples I know of women on the far right when they've been in uh, spokesperson, de facto spokesperson and representative type roles. Uh, I sometimes see people not treating treating the message as dangerously because and because it seems to be coming from a woman. It just it just seems to be like oh the, somebody who somebody who's who's you know saying this can't be. Ex- that extreme or that dangerous they're you know they're not into violence they're they're a short they're a short young woman focusing on appearance and things like that they must be some sort of softer de-radicalizing influence i mean i've heard things like that and i just kind of scratched my head and thought are 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 you sure you know <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I actually have a friend, uh, Kat Tibaldi, who has written mm. about this precisely. She t- she talks about far-right women talking softly. Um, and, like, and she, like, is it like, sorry, as in physically with their, not metaphorically talking softly. With no, physically our, talking softly. Our, like our voices right now talking more softly. Exactly. Really? And, and how that is a very deliberate strategy. She calls it uh, metapolitical seduction, which oh. I think is oh, fantastic. Okay. I am going, I'm going to have to look. That is a great term. Yeah. You, you know, in which sense I mean great, but yes. <laughs> okay. That captures it very well. That's really interesting, actually. And I mean, one it's it's really becoming more increasingly clear, as if it wasn't already, that misogyny is so much at the core of, I guess, what I'll call like a a global right wing backlash, whether it's from Roe v. Wade being overturned in the U.S., uh, the abortion ban in Poland, and unfortunately maybe other places. Uh, something we see in Central and Eastern Europe are particularly nationalistic angst over birth rates, uh, misogyny and terrorist manifestos, uh, misogyny that underpins abuse, harassment, trolling campaigns. So with this, as there's, you know, paradoxically perhaps, a bit more of attention being placed on the rise of misogyny, particularly obviously on the far right, is that going to serve as an obstacle for the far right when it comes to recruiting women? Or could it actually be an opportunity that people like us and people listening need to be paying more attention to? So pessimistically, no, I don't think it's an obstacle for the far right Mm -hmm. uh, to recruit women. I think building on what we discussed earlier uh, simply because they are very good <laughs> at weaponizing yeah. misogyny. Um, but what you're describing here with all these examples of of a global right-wing mm-hmm. backlash, and I think that's an excellent way of framing it, um, 
I think a bigger issue here is that we see that misogyny is prevalent across mainstream society and yes. norms or, or gender norms or, or norms of sexuality. And really what the far right does is it simply exercises a much more extreme interpretation of those norms. Mm -hmm. and, and it promotes it as something that's quote unquote natural or desirable even. Mm -hmm. So really what we're discussing here is the danger with the far right being in power, um, actually literally being elected to governments where mm -hmm. they can push for this legislative change. Um, and what's happening now with this global right-wing backlash, um, it really reflects a long-term game um, that, that has come as a result of the far right pushing for these deep cultural and, and social changes, this reactionary changes, right? The right. far right is very good at playing the long game. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, and this is being reflected in our current political moments. Um, so we shouldn't be surprised, but we should understand that this has been a long-term strategy um, that has finally come to fruition. And so we need to think about how to fight against that. Right. And also at the cultural and social level. And, and and, and like you mentioned, the fact that that uh, this misogyny that we particularly see from the far right, it's not something that exists in some sort of bubble as if our the mainstream in our societies does not have these misogynistic tendencies and, and elements as well. You know, it, it's clearly when we, I mean, this, I think this is an, an argument that applies across the far right when we talk about far right ideologies is it's 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 like a radicalization of a sentiment that's already mainstream yeah that's an excellent way of putting it i i, I it was just me restating what you said but but no that's it was okay. a very good summary <laughs> so i mean from what from what you said over our chat i think I mean, there's things to be maybe pessimistic or worrisome about, but I, I think the fact that, uh, I mean, from, from what I see online and from what I see from people I know, especially in the United States after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, is people, and people, I mean, women and men, are paying much more attention now to issues of, of gender, of of women's rights of misogyny and also a related theme when it comes to LGBT plus rights. So on the one hand, I can, tr I, I try to be an optimist and I can, I can see some of that uh, resistance as it were starting to, you know, starting to take shape and people becoming more aware. But of course the pessimistic side is this is this, this sort of thing is growing. So I, I don't know whether to be an optimist or pessimist or somewhere, somewhere smack in the middle. So. I think we have to be both, though, right? Yeah, it, 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 yeah, it's a bit contradictory. But I, I, on some days, I'm more pessimistic than others. But yeah, I think on, I think it's a matter of being both and being realistic about what, uh, what the threats are, but also, ironically, what the opportunities are, what the, what the leverage is, I guess, in terms of understanding, not just understanding the the roots and the impacts of of you know mis misogynist ideologies in these in these movements but understanding how to push back against them yeah and i think one way to start you know if, if i could talk to these far-right women is to actually awaken them to a lot of the contradictions 
uh, of them being part of the far right means, mm. I mean, in terms of their daily life, but also their ideology. Um, as I mentioned earlier, they face a lot of pes- uh, misogyny um, for, right. for being so visible. They actually do exercise very feminist traits. You know, they, for example, own bank accounts to gather donations. They uh, sell, they write books, they, they sell merchandise. I mean, all of these types of activities would not have been possible if it weren't for right. feminism and for women's rights. Um, so I think and often we take for granted the advances that have been made through through with the women's rights movement, for instance. And so these far right women also should realize that they benefit from that legacy as well. I mean, this this is something that you see with these quote unquote trad wives who, you know, at least on the surface are choosing very much an in inverted commas choosing to take on this persona of a of an idealized 1950s era type wife when it's the opportunities afforded by feminism that have allowed them to even be in a position to make that choice. Yes, exactly. So is there anything more that you want to add, Evian? Is there, is there anything you really want to impart that you think we've missed in our time here? Any, anything at all? Well, I'm sure there's actually plenty. Uh, that's that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's a, that's a bit of a dangerous question to yeah. ask, isn't it? Because we might be here a while then. But uh... No, no. I think this has provided a really good overview of understanding women in the far right. And I would just say to listeners, you know, if you're interested, I have written a bit more about this in the details uh, through my publications, but also through the, the book that's set to come out next year. Great. I'm I'm looking forward to that. And uh yeah, I'll be like I said, I'll be uh I'll be probably pre ordering that when it comes out. So it'll be it'll be on my my book my bookshelf that uh, I, I'm based for people who don't know, I'm also based in the Netherlands and Amsterdam and uh my bookshelf here, I don't have all my books from Canada over here yet, which is probably a good thing, but because my Dutch bookshelf is uh it, it's getting increasingly full of of books on the far right so it's uh, a work in progress yes exactly it's very much a work in progress so uh um thanks a lot evian for taking the time to chat with me here no thanks so much for having me so thanks very much everyone for listening to this episode of bellingcat monitoring if you'd like to keep up with the latest on what the far right is up to across central and eastern europe but indeed around the world uh make sure to follow the bellingcat monitoring project on twitter uh, at BCAT Monitoring, and check out bellingcat.com for our reports and our investigations. Thanks very much. The Bellingcat Monitoring Podcast is produced by Michael Colborn and Giancarlo Fiorella for Stitching Bellingcat. The music you've heard is titled Glowing Vitality by Dream Cave, courtesy of Epidemic Sound. <laughs>